0: Welcome to TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast where several hosts talk about the week's technology news and whatever else comes to mind. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com teh39. We have all four hosts this week. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment newsletter on the internet and the creator of the online offline viral getoutofhellfree.com.
1: I'm Kevin Savitz, effervescent podcast host.
2: <laughs> effervescent. I have to follow effervescent. I'm <laughs> Leo
1: Notenboom. can't, Leo. I'm too <laughs> effervescent.
2: I'm Leo Notenboom, chief question answerer out at askleo.com. I'm also the publisher of a couple of non-tech sites, uh, notallnewsisbad.com, a, a daily antidote for basically everything else you read in the headlines, and heroicstories.org, twice weekly stories of people just being good People. Speaking of good people, Gary. <laughs> well,
3: thank you. <laughs> oh, nice. uh, I try to be good by teaching people how to use their Macs at MacMost.com, and also creating lots of uh, you know mobile games and things like that, mostly free at CleverMedia.com.
0: Well, that is
3: very good. I'll try to be.
0: So there's some bad stuff going on with the breach of the week.
3: Are we going to go to what, what we did? This oh, course. you're right. Selfie yeah. did this week. Hey, still I was
0: excited day. because I got to do the Breach of the Week, but yeah. I can wait. Go ahead.
3: You still get to do it. <laughs> well, what, what, what are you up to, Randy?
0: <laughs> I am actually looking out my window, and I can see fresh snow in the mountains. That is a wonderful thing when you live in Colorado.
3: Well, it's September. Yep. Is
2: it on schedule? Early, late?
0: Um. Probably a little bit late. Actually, we did have a dusting last month. It didn't last very long. This probably won't last real long either, but hey, it's a start.
2: I was just looking at the weather report um, for the Seattle area and we apparently have had like the driest two months on record. Uh, for out here for a city that's known for rain it's actually quite quite interesting and it's supposed to be dry for a while exactly how soon and how hard winter will hit isn't isn't known yet but uh i envy you your snow Hmm.
0: well it's been nice and cool too we've been getting rain here and snow in the mountains so the moisture is a good thing Yeah. yeah
1: My, my wife said that she read somewhere that the, the, the farmer 's almanac, which you know everyone consults all the time, says that this this winter is supposed to be a particularly hard winter, and she had noticed that our our pet turtles are just like eating like crazy, and she was mentioning that like in, in the back in like the little, the little house on the prairie books, which you know she 's read to the children multiple times. Um, they could always tell if a winter was going to be hard based on how the animals behaved. And she's like, we don't have a lot of animals, but these turtles, man, they really <laughs> really won't stop eating. And plus the thing she read about the, the farmer's almanac. So I don't know. Maybe it's, it's going to be something this winter.
3: Or maybe they yeah. detect the heat lamp over the turtles is like at the end of life. <laughs> <And> it's going <laughs> to burn out and they're eating a lot now. You know, go with that. So, maybe. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Gary, what are you even up to? Well, uh, we've talked the last, uh, I think well twice in the last maybe three episodes or so about the scooter invasion, all these, uh, cool little scooters that, scooter uh,
1: invasion. yeah,
3: that are in cities like Portland and Denver and all over the place. So, uh, I was tired of talking about them. I wanted to actually try one, even though I didn't necessarily need it. Um, I wanted to give it a try. So I did give it a try this week finally, and it was fun. It uh, I rode a lime scooter. We have both, uh, bird and line here and I just basically looked at both apps and there was a Lime scooter near me where I was so I grabbed a Lime scooter um, and rode it for about two miles to get home from my walk I walked the So you just miles. left it
0: on the sidewalk outside your house?
3: Yeah I did actually um, no. since, since I happen to live on a corner so it was. Kind and of you
0: live cute. in kind of downtown Denver. Yeah I live
3: in downtown so it was like I could have left it on a corner in front of somebody else's house but I thought that uh, you know that's one of the things people complain about is oh there's somebody left three scooters in front of my house. It's like, well, I'll just leave it in front of my own house and nobody can complain. And it was gone within an hour. Somebody else had taken it, but I was going to ask. Yeah. So, uh, that was pretty, it was pretty cool. So it cost $3 to ride two miles. Um, so definitely saved over, say if I had decided, Oh, I'm done walking. I, I'll take an Uber home or something would have cost way more. Uh, and it was uh, it was fun. They go a lot faster than I thought. Really? Uh, or y- you could also read that as I'm a lot older than I think. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, they you know they go up to 50 miles an hour, which when you're just standing, you're standing up and then moving along sidewalks. Uh, that seems fast, so I didn't actually even use it at full speed most of the time because it kind of wasn't.
1: It scare you? Yeah, scared. Frightened? Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. but scare unfortunately,
3: Denver is the only city I think that you have to use them on sidewalks right now, as opposed to the street. Other cities do the opposite; they say don't use them on sidewalks. You must use them in the street. Uh, Denver's the opposite, and that will probably change. But for now, I wanted to obey those rules, so I did it on the sidewalk, which was one of the reasons I kept the speed low. And another thing is the cracks in the sidewalk, especially in an old neighborhood like mine, it's just, it's tough. They have no suspension. So every time you go over one of these cracks in the sidewalk, it's just a whole jolt to your body. And, you know, every block has 30 different sidewalk cracks. And
0: <laughs> I guess I don't want you to be too darn comfortable.
3: Yeah. So you're like, you know, clunk, 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 as, you, as you're as you going down the street. And it really does uh, kind of shake up your skeleton after two miles um, and I could see why I've seen people disobeying that rule and just riding on the street. Cause that would just be nice and smooth compared to, uh, to riding on the sidewalk. But it was convenient. It cut down my, so it was a 40 minute walk to where I went to lunch and then coming home, it was 20 minutes to get home. So it cut my time in half, would have cut it down much more if I was on the street rather than on sidewalks. I think, um, it was very easy to use. So I used an app, you know, the, the official Lime app. And it was, all I did was scan the little um, QR code with the app, and it unlocked the bike. Made me agree to the terms of service, and then I did Apple Pay, so I didn't have to actually do you know enter any payment information. And then it, it was unlocked and ready to go. And uh, when I got to the end, I in the app I hit a you know I'm done riding button, and it asked me to take a picture. So it wanted to, me to take a picture to encourage good parking behavior um, mm. instead of dumping it into a creek or something uh, <laughs> and course, uh, you could dump it in the in the creek after yeah, you take the yeah, picture. Take picture and then uh, it wanted me to and also it said so the uh, so, picture of your butt yeah so the next rider could find the scooter if it was in a dense area or something so anyway, so I did that, but you know it was pretty you know just a few seconds. To finish the ride like that, and anyway, it was good. I I do it again. I would definitely walk further now with more confidence, knowing that if I don't feel like walking back, or I decided I need to get back quicker than the walk will allow, maybe I could just grab a scooter and cut down on some some time. So there you go. Very cool. cool. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Next next time you do one, just ride over the mountains. Come over to my house.
3: The whole, yeah. Let's see. So at 15 miles an hour maximum speed, (laughs) it would take me.
1: But he's only willing to go eight because he's scared. Yeah.
3: Well, I'd have to. I have to find. It would take you two or three days. I I don't. I think. I think if you go out of the area, it actually disables itself. Like there's a fenced-in area, like city of.
0: Well, not to mention that run out of battery pretty
3: quick. Yeah. Well, I could you know bring bring with me (laughs) trick. something a gas powered generator
1: (laughs) well yeah you need a a scooter on your back that is and then when your scooter runs out of batteries you switch scooters and
3: uh yeah there you go well the um so the don't have
1: supercharging stations for those come on yeah
3: the it did actually at the end it gave me a little thing saying i saved some amount of carbon footprint Measurement, you know, over (laughs) walking. Well, that's just it. I was like, um yeah, over walking. That's not actually true. Maybe over driving, but over walking, I definitely used more Mm -hmm. carbon than, or maybe compared to the
1: Humvee, they assumed you would you'd
3: have a locomotive, (laughs) coal powered steam engine locomotive.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How about you, Kevin? Well, I also tried something for the sake of trying it, mostly to talk about it here. Um, I discovered there's something, uh, a, a service, free service offered by the post office called Informed Delivery, and uh, they they take um, pictures of your mail and email pictures of the front of your mail to you before it is delivered. Um, now I've known for quite some time that for security or NSA fun or whatever that the post office takes pictures. Of all the mail that goes through its system, um, which seems pretty incredible. But now you can opt into, for, for at least the last few months, you, you can opt into receiving the pictures of your mail yourself. So I signed up for it. And now every morning um, around 7 or 8 a.m., I get an email called Informed Delivery Daily Digest, which sure enough has photographs of the mail. And I usually receive the mail that day. Um usually not always. Uh, sometimes it comes the next day, I think. Huh. But um so I mean but literally I mean so I get I pick here's a I'm getting pictures of junk mail. I mean they send pictures of <laughs> not everything, but oh here's here's a, a a Dell small business catalog and here's something from looks like a mortgage or credit card company or something. And and then and then legitimate first class mail as well. So um my summary of this is, I guess it's interesting, but it's, it's. It, I think it's a waste of my time because there's nothing actionable. It's like, yep, here's a picture of the mail that's going to come, and then the mail comes, and that's it. You know, then I recycle it or read it or whatever. But
0: well, I, I think know. the idea is if you're expecting a check or whatever, mm-hmm. something important, that you see it's there, and then you know if it didn't show up, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. If you
2: questionable, uh, uh, delivery person. For example, uh, we've certainly had cases where our regular guy is awesome. I mean, we know him and we talk to him all the time, but of course he gets a day off every week and we get a, a substitute and the substitute is some of the substitutes in the past have been less than reliable and our mail has gone to the wrong place. So at least that disconnect of knowing it's supposed to come and then not seeing it, presumably you can take some kind of action on that.
1: Sure. Um, um
0: It it actually really makes me mad because I've known about this for like a year. And, you know, what mailbox is more secure and more available to the post office than their own P.O. boxes? Mm -hmm. And they say that informed delivery is available for my zip code, but not for P.O. boxes. It's like, what?
1: That's bizarre. That's weird. And it's not available in all cities. Um, uh, The person I found this out from they can't use it so but i looked and sure enough i can so okay you know.
3: you know the po box thing that would actually be useful because especially if they had an extra feature where you could click on it and say throw this away <laughs> yeah. because that's the, I, I have a po box and mm-hmm. i rarely get there matter of fact <laughs> it's like i can't remember the last time i was there so i should probably get there it's probably stuff full of junk mail and wrongly addressed mail And, um, or it's correctly addressed to my PO box, but it's, I have no idea what that business is. And, um, I go there, I empty the box out and in the many years I've had it, I have never once received a legitimate piece of mail. So I'd love to be able to get the photos of it and then actually be able to say, be nice. I have to say, toss, toss,
1: toss Yeah, I, I, I try to go to my PO box once a month. It ends up being like once every three months. And sometimes there's something important there that's been sitting there for a couple months before I get to it. And it would be really be, be nice to not have to check. But when I, whenever I check my PO box, it's an adventure because someone will send my business. A, there's usually a, a, a crazy person who sends uh, my business a, a piece of mail. And it's always interesting. Someone will just like, you know, you have a, a handwritten demand for a million dollars because their, their printable didn't print out right. Or, or, you know, someone will ask for technical support for fact zero. by. You
0: should be giving them
1: double their money back. Ma- I know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a technical support request by snail mail. And there's all sorts of weirdos. <laughs> it's always good. So t- of- to be fair, I've had a couple of
2: people mail me I have the same mailbox problem. And I'm, I'm also willing to bet, by the way, that half of your junk mail is from Comcast. Um, yes. get, mm-hmm. yeah, yes. every, every time Correct. there's multiple Comcast, uh, flyers out there. I, and since I'm a Comcast customer, I can't imagine how much of my bill actually goes to paying for the junk mail that I then in turn get all of it. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, the, um, uh, I do get the occasional technical question by physical mail, but I've had people send me money. <laughs> how do I send an email? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's the I've only people, question I will
2: allow. I've had people send me money. They they want to. They, they don't trust credit cards online. They don't yeah. like PayPal. So they actually write me a physical check and drop it in the mail. And <laughs> what's interesting is I don't make the post office box mailing address particularly easy to find. I don't go out of my way to hide it. I just don't use it. It's not one of your one of my contact methods. So people do actually put in a little extra effort uh, to figure out how to track me down and, and send me a piece of physical mail, which by the way is why I have a post office box and not my home address.
0: Well, isn't your PO box in the bottom of all your uh, newsletter mail?
2: Actually, you're right. It is.
3: That's yep, true. That's, that's, from, that's what mine. That's the whole reason I have my PO box. Yep, yep.
2: That's, I'll <laughs> put it. Let me, let me back up. That's one of my PO boxes. I actually have two for various reasons. Um and You're fancy, uh, I know. Me too. <laughs> Give me a little technology, and I just go too far.
3: Yeah, uh, if they, you know, if the post office actually had some sort of PO forwarding service where it was a PO box, but mm-hmm. the mail never went into a box, it actually was forwarded to you, so it was it masked your address.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I would I would pay for that, mm-hmm. even though they'd just be delivering junk email, and they would save a, a physical PO box and be able to sell that to somebody else. Yep.
2: Yep. There are companies, services, that'll do exactly that. They're just not U.S. post office. I'll, I'll
3: have to write a letter to the post office <laughs> and, and tell them of my request. <sighs> <laughs> Dear Postmaster General. Yeah.
1: What else, Kevin? You got else? Uh, let's see what else. I, uh, that was my geeky uh, thing. And uh, for my, uh, my, one of my other podcasts, uh, Eaten by a Gru, it's the uh, podcast where we are playing old Infocom text adventure games. We uh, finished a game called Cutthroats, which was a game where you uh, are on a deep-sea diving mission to recover treasure underwater, and it's uh, easily the worst Infocom game that I've (laughs) heard. (laughs) Oh! What year is it from? Uh, 84. I think it was was right after uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, but before Temple of Doom, so... Because I was trying to figure out, like, how much of the ideas for our next game, which is uh, about exploring a, a Egyptian pyramid, how much, like, did they take from from the Indiana Jones movies? So, um, so yeah, Cutthroats was uh, not a great game, but we had fun playing it and doing the episode about it. And uh, the other thing I want to mention is, is, just before we started recording tonight, I, I watched uh, Back to the Future again with uh, my <laughs> kid, and that movie holds up. So oh, yeah, sometimes you see a movie from you know the eighties and you're just like, mm, you know, uh, not as good as now I remember, but man, back to the future is a great movie. It's fun. Yeah. Yep. That is all. all. I'm going to have all. to look at it again.
2: Well, as for me, i it's been one of those weeks where I'm just, you know, churning out answers as best I can. One thing I did play with over the weekend. Um, I think you guys know that I record myself recording my podcasts which sounds like kind of a, a recording of a recording, a meta type thing. But in reality, it's, it's another way of just dis- distributing the podcast over YouTube and have it be something other than just a static slate. It's actually me talking. But um, I've been playing with uh, the, the layout of my little video setup, my little video studio, which is actually where I'm standing right now, except the camera, of course, isn't turned on. Uh, I switched from having a... Uh, uh, you know, some bookshelves and stuff in the background to going green screen. Um, our uh, mutual friend, uh, David Lawrence, made some suggestions based on a uh, uh, back uh, background or how things happen in the background a video I did a couple of weeks ago to improve my lighting. I've dramatically improved the lighting in here. Uh, but basically, that's what I was doing. The one thing I ended up doing in response to another friend who commented on the quality of my audio Was one of the recordings I made yesterday, I think, or the day before turned out to be the moral equivalent of three tracks. Normally I'm recording the screen and my microphone using Camtasia and then I'm using my SLR, my DSLR to record the actual video of my talking head. But this friend suggested that I should try recording with audacity and then running some of the post-processing through audacity so those are the kinds of geeky things that I play with when I'm, when I'm you know curious, uh, firing up all those things and throwing three different tracks of video and audio and God knows what, um, all back into Camtasia, by the way. Camtasia is screen recording software. I get that. That's its claim to fame. That's its primary uh, purpose that most people think of it as. But in reality, its video editor is wonderfully straightforward. I'll just say straightforward especially when you compare it to professional things like Final Cut or Adobe Premiere. So I've been doing all of my uh, screen <laughs> editing, all of my video editing in Camtasia. So lots more playing with that over the weekend and
1: nice seeing what else pops out. So you're playing playing with with video. I uh, my daughter likes to you know she's 11, she likes to take the iPad and make little movies. And uh, sometimes it's her and her friends and sometimes it's you know she's just like recording her her dolls doing stuff and like, okay, fine. And she's having fun. And so just like on a lark, I bought uh, on Amazon a $15 green screen. It's basically a, it's a green sheet. That's mm-hmm. the, the right color to, to do uh, uh, chroma key. And uh, it's just been sitting here in my office for a couple of weeks. And, uh, and then just out of nowhere, she like mentioned like, Oh, I you know wish I could do my something, you know. In a, I was in a forest or something. I'm just like mm, you could use a green screen, and she like just like knew exactly like what I meant, and she was just wow. like, "Oh, I wish we had one." I'm just like look 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 in my office. I think it's sitting on the bin over there. <laughs> <laughs> so we spent like the next hour and a half playing with green screen. Uh, and we just had so much fun. I mean, the, the quality was just, of course, terrible. And, and uh, we didn't know what we we're doing and the lighting was bad and stuff. But, you know, there's, there's video for floating in space and getting lost in a forest. And then, you know, it's like, like, oh, you know, if you do it, do it like this, you can uh, have an invisibility cloak like Harry Potter. It's we, <laughs> we so much fun um, making terrible green screen video. That's awesome.
2: Yeah. yeah, my green screen literally is just a a, a big piece of green cloth that I also bought on Amazon and it actually still has um, the folds in it from getting shipped out here yeah. a year or two ago, but it's all close enough to the same color. You know, when you look at it on the, uh, on the video mm-hmm. that um, what Camtasia calls remove color is really uh, green screen. It's really, you know, chroma key and it doesn't have to be green. It's just convenient that it is.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, it actually works amazingly well. Although I do have to remember not to wear my
1: green shirt. We uh, we used uh, iMovie, which has a nice chroma key function too. Cool. Yeah, I think most of them do now. That's
2: it's it's one of those things that people kind of expect.
0: Yeah, I saw your test video that you posted over the weekend, and Mm -hmm. when you turned off the chroma key so you could see the the material behind you, I did notice that it had a lot of folds and wrinkles and stuff in it. And it's it's really neat how that just doesn't matter.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's all close enough to the right, the right color green. And of course you can adjust that, right? And as yeah. you're, as you're doing things, you can adjust its tolerance for just how much, you know, how light or how dark. How and I was, was
0: looking, you know, usually the the problem area is around your hair where you kind of get a halo of green or something Uh huh. and it looked really good. I was really
1: surprised. So it depends on- talk about his lack of it, his lack of hair no not me i've got no
0: leo's got much more hair than any of the rest of us
2: (laughs) (laughs) sorry i was thinking about myself sorry (laughs) um so on the video that i think you watched the background was probably a photograph i took that had but to have a lot of green in it
0: right it was like a forest scene or something
2: which minimizes the effect there are a couple of videos coming up um there's one where i have uh, I just went for kind of like a brick wall background to see how it how it would work. And that definitely, I've got a bit of the green halo going on. Uh, since then, I've switched to a more solid color, or I should say a, gradi- a color gradient, using what I consider Ask Leo Blue uh, to white, which isn't green, but that and a little bit of tweaking with the color picker uh, allowed me to actually make it look pretty good so i 'm actually pretty pleased, but yes, that was a big problem at the very first is if you just take the the default settings and throw yourself against like bare white, then absolutely you 're glowing green it just doesn 't look pretty
3: <laughs> so so the thing about green screens are <laughs> is we don't we 're not going to need them for very much longer. Um, the augmented reality stuff uh, i don 't know if you guys have ever played with any of some of the apps do this but they, they know what objects are close to the camera, what objects are far, and they could take you out of the background, whatever the background is, mm-hmm. and then put you into a scene that is actually 3D and responsive to direction. So you could walk around with your phone, with the you know AR app, and it will take the background out, just put you in there, and as you swing the phone around, the background swings around as if it's really there right. um, which is and and then on top of that, the background is actually animated you know leaves are blowing in the wind and right. you know things are, are moving around so uh, some of the stuff is I've played with it. it's you know you can't do that much with it yet because you know they've only been working working with it for a short time but Pretty soon technology's there to actually uh, just do some amazing stuff just you know, just a button on your phone and now you're you you're not just on the roller coaster but you can actually move the camera around you right. and you see all angles as the roller coaster is actually moving uh, you know through its sequence so anyway some really cool post green screen technology just just coming you know this year and and beyond
0: it used to be that you needed a, a pretty decent computer just to do chroma key. Yeah. And, but now it's like, uh, your phone can do augmented reality. No problem.
1: Oh, yeah. No problem. Yeah.
2: Exactly. So. Oh, so Randy, you watch were the just, progression. Go ahead. We're just itching to get to some kind of a breach. Oh, no. I, 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 on we on can fly. talk about video no. for uh, <laughs> another half hour if you
0: want. <laughs> so this Google engineer, you know, back when I worked at uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, we had these little key cards where we could go in the door. You know, we we just wave the card in front of the, the reader and it would let you in. So they have those at Google. And this Google engineer, presumably a network engineer, was watching the network traffic of those systems just coming over their network. And, and he noticed that the different packets looked very similar And if it's encrypted, it should look random, not similar. So he started looking into it and realized that he could figure out how to open any door he wanted. The first one he did was his own and just looked up and, and, you know, listened as his door lock clicked to let somebody in that there was nobody there and there was nobody waving the card in front of the reader and realized that he had control over every door in the entire facility. And the the reason was he figured out was that they had hard encoded the security, the encryption certificate in the hardware rather than using something like TLS that would do handshaking and, and do a different kind of key every time. So it this is only a particular company's product. It's not every darn you know key locking system in the world but it just kind of goes to show that you got to watch this stuff and and see how it is they're implemented especially when it's a security device and you know if it can fool Google it can fool any of us these internet of things devices that we have in our house or our office are vulnerable the uh, or can the
2: extent, be to the extent that Google made a mistake the the mistake they made was one of of omission in that they didn't audit the uh, the traffic from these devices earlier and or they allowed this traffic on their own internal network. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting when you can actually literally hack your way into Google.
0: Yeah, I just – this only came out today and it really caught my attention when I saw it because I've used these things before. They're really neat. Oh, yeah. And they're nothing new. I mean,
2: when I was at Microsoft, we used the exact same technology 30, 35 years ago. Uh, Whether it's the exact same technology is unclear, but it was the same same concept. It's
0: the same idea. I mean, they they use these little transponders that... uh,
2: Wave it in front of the receiver and and it lets you and identifies you somehow.
0: And the way they work is they they send out little uh, RF pulses, little radio pulses, and there's enough energy in that to activate the chip in the card to send back an encoded response. And, uh, you know, they've, they've been around, like you said, for 35, 40 years. But even back when I was doing it at JPL, it, I did notice that it was all going over a network and to a computer that was on the security guard's desk. <laughs> <laughs> so he could go in there literally and walk right. somebody out if he needed to, right. like somebody got fired or whatever. Right. So, you know, it just goes to show how vulnerable some of this stuff is. Very cool. But that's well, all I had to say about that one. Sure.
2: To uh, to switch gears completely, I can't even think of a segue. Maybe one of you did. I ran across an article this afternoon, Centuries-Old Plant Collection Now Online, A Treasure Trove for Researchers. Uh, to quote, funded by the National Science Foundation, the Mid-Atlantic Megalopolis Project will put about 800,000 records from about a dozen herbaria uh, online via high-resolution photos of plant specimens that, speci- that span the urbanized corridor from New York City to Washington, D.C. Now, I'm not a plant guy. I, I'm not. Um, the fact, you know, The fact that this is plants doesn't really excite me. What excites me is here's yet another example of a bucket load of really valuable information becoming accessible online. Um, It's it's one of those opportunities where, one of those situations where we've got this wonderful opportunity with the internet and the way we're storing data, the way we're collecting data for us to make that data available to many more people than otherwise would be. I mean, you can imagine, you know, people in the past would have had to have traveled to this specific um, location to actually see these uh, samples in person. Whereas, you know, a good 80, 90 percent of a lot of the research that's being done can be done with the information over the wire. I just find that fascinating. And and it's one of those cases where this is not unique. This is something that's happening all the time, there's all sorts of information that's being made available online of specific interest to various researchers, various sciences, uh, various historical uh, uh, you know uh, works. Uh, it's just I find it just fascinating, and obviously, I'm very enthusiastic about it.
0: What really yes. caught me about this: eight hundred thousand different plants from a dozen different plant libraries is what a herbaria is. Um, Yet it only covers from New York City to Washington, D.C. That's not a really big chunk of the country. True. So so just imagine what it would take to cover just this one country and then expand that to the entire world. I mean, it's mind-boggling.
2: There's two pieces to it. One is the initial collection, and my claim is that that initial collection has, for the most part, already happened. Like so many uh, things that we come to find online – the real work now is in the digitization, the, the, the high-resolution photographs, the, the data entry that, is so, that goes along with the probably handwritten notes for a lot of these kinds of things. That's where things get really interesting, and that's where there's a lot of work. But that's what enables so much of this wonderful online research.
1: I read today I, that the, the National Museum of Brazil burned down. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and they lost everything. Right. And uh, it was supposed to be an just incredible collections of, of history. And it's just gone, 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 gone. And uh, man, I mean, just, it makes me wonder like how, how much of this stuff has been photographed and digitized probably right. not very much. Cause apparently they weren't even bothering with things like, like uh, fire detection equipment. So um, wow. Uh, apparently, yeah, there was an article published like six or eight months ago about just like the star- sorry state of the museum and how they had like no funding to to do anything, and that's probably part of the reason why why it it uh, was able to burn down today. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, I, I just like it, once you have it digitized, you know, once it's online, at least at least want, even if it burns away, at least it's there in some way. Right, for it, people to it's people the research.
2: It goes back to something I talk about often with respect to backups. Mm -hmm. I I granted you, it's not, it's not the original, right? It's like, you know, if you've got your, um, your slides, your printed photographs, your negatives, whatever. uh, Yes. If you lose those, you've lost the originals. But if you have uh, made digital copies of them, if you've done anything Mm -hmm. that you can then easily and simply replicate, you know, to various other servers online in different disparate locations You've protected a tremendous amount of the eva- of the value in those ori- that was inherent in those originals,
0: and it happens here too. I mean, the Santa Rosa fire took down uh, the archive of the early records of Hewlett Packard that right. were being yeah. stored in a company that bought out that part of Hewlett Packard, and in fact, uh, Leo and I talked about it in my own podcast. He was my first uh, guest to talk about basically you got to back this stuff up, even if it's physical. You can take pictures. You can scan stuff. Yep. yep. And they didn't.
2: And I, I, I will admit, I, I, it's taken me a long time, but I am practicing what I preach. I realized last year, I think it was, that I have this collection of old photograph albums from my parents. And by old, I mean World War II and prior. And they were the only copies. Not only was I not looking at them because they were in the basement, uh, if something ever happened, they'd be gone and everything in them would be gone forever. So I actually went through the process of just scanning the pages. I didn't even try to annotate anything yet. They just scanned the pages, upload them online. They've got them in cloud storage in a couple of different places. So no matter what happens to the physical albums, we at least have copies of uh, the images that go with them.
3: You know, when I was uh, in Hungary, I, I did go to the their national museum and uh, it, it made me think of this, you know, I wonder how much of that the museum in Brazil, while maybe not digitized by the curators, it was digitized by tourists like mm-hmm. me who go through museums and take pictures of things. And if, you know, so it's not the kind of thing where, you know, say 40 years ago, you know, maybe there's a few precious photos somewhere lying around there could actually be online right now on cloud services and people's photo collections lots of photos of that mm-hmm. stuff. Of course the weird thing about the one in Hungary is they actually had a no photography policy but you could pay for a photo badge and so you paid extra and you got this badge you wore and that said that you're allowed to take photographs inside the museum.
1: I had that too at the uh, the salt mines in Poland Yeah. you needed to pay a little extra to take pictures. Like, okay, sure. You know, Uh,
3: Oh yeah, I did. I read away, even though I only took like a handful of pictures, I did. It was only like came to like $2 more or something. And I had my camera with me and I was like, "Uh, you know, it's fine. It goes to the museum. It's, you know, it's fine. But, uh, but it makes me wonder the wisdom of that, you know, maybe it's better to have tourists going through as long as you're not using flash or tripod, uh, you know, but you know, going through and taking tons of pictures, you know, digitize that stuff to death, uh, crowdsource the, the digitizing of the museum's artifacts. The,
2: uh, the only concern is uh, there's no concern for the stuff that's on display. The problem is so many of these museums have so much that 's not on the floor it 's yeah. actually not on display that 's not accessible to folks
0: with their camera. usually the majority of their collection
2: usually yeah. the majority they 're constantly rotating things out, which is great because you know then of course the digitization kind of sort of happens the we 'll call it passive digitization as as uh, you know people come by and, and look at these things, but still uh, there 's so much you know, in the basement in the vault in the in the secret layer of these these yeah. museums that Probably even hasn't seen the light of day in decades.
3: I, I know at the British Museum in London, it's some astounding number. Something like 98% or something of what they've got is not on display. Right. And, uh, probably the
0: same in the Smithsonian.
3: Yeah. yeah. And to be
0: fair,
2: you know, of that 98%, 98% of it is probably uninteresting. In other words, it <laughs> wouldn't make for a good display.
0: Yeah.
2: It makes for a good historical record, which is actually a stronger argument for getting it digitized so that uh, the people who are less likely to be traveling to these museums as tourists, uh, but actually are more likely to be back at their office or their uh, educational institution doing research so that they have ex- access to these, these lesser known items.
1: You know, I do a lot of of work with computer history stuff for my podcast and, and, and hobby. And I've had several occasions now where I have donated items to computer museums. Um, there's, uh, the living computer museum in Seattle has some stuff and, and, uh, the the strong museum of play in, uh, New York. Um, and I have found, uh, well, first of all, whenever, before I send anything to these museums, I make sure that I digitize it and I put it online at archive.org. And there's two reasons for that. And I know I realize that the digitization I'm doing is probably not of the professional caliber that would be uh, done by the museum itself. Um, but at least it's something. And I put it up on archive.org and which does two things. One, it's a backup. If the museum burns down, there's at least there's, you know, a 600 DPI picture of it. And secondly, um, it's available to everyone. I have found many times that once a museum has something, uh, I, I've gone, gone to a museum and say, you know, you have this thing in your archive. Uh, I would like to, to see it. I would like a digitized copy of it or whatever, either no response or they say, sure, you can do that. You know, uh, it's a hundred dollars a page for photocopies or whatever. And then you can't publish it in any way, you know? (laughs) So, um, you know, whatever their, their, their rules are, you know, which probably makes sense within their scope of running their museum, but it doesn't make sense to me. So anyway, before I send that something to a museum, I I put it up on archive. It's available for free forever for the world to look at. And then the, the physical real thing is preserved, hopefully, you know, for a long time
2: kind of funny uh, that reminds me that I've been doing something very similar but in a different uh, sphere. I have I I was in my basement digging around in some boxes and I ran across some of the original hiring materials that were given to me when I started at Microsoft in 1983. And I ended up doing effectively the same thing. I ended up scanning everything because it was actually really cool. Uh, very nostalgic, uh, very bizarre to see where Microsoft was in 1983. But then I also shared it um, in a Facebook group called Microsoft Old Timers so that a bunch of other folk of my ilk uh, could get a kick out of it, and they did, and in fact, it's encouraged them to be to start doing more of the same. But then I also got in contact with the Microsoft archives because they do have their own archive, and I asked them if they were interested in any of this stuff. So same thing, Uh, scan it first and then give it away Uh, and hopefully give it to the right person, be it a museum or corporate archives or wherever, Uh, and hopefully they won't burn down, but hopefully they're also doing the right thing on a number of fronts. Yes, I've got my original um, um, interview schedule, my original resume, um, my original offer letter, a uh, bunch of the uh, the introduction uh, to you know welcome to Microsoft here's how wonderful we are, all that kind of stuff. It's it's actually hilarious.
0: And what year was that? That'd be
2: 1983.
0: So yeah, it's it's early in the company history and maybe Absolutely. of real interest. You know, my uh, mother-in-law recently died, and when Kit was cleaning out the stuff, you know, from uh, from the trunks and all that, she found things from uh, University of Colorado where her mother went to school and found, you know, bulletins and newsletters and photographs and other trinkets. And she called the university and said, do you want this stuff? And they said, heck yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they, they didn't think to keep that stuff way back when. Right. Right. And yeah, they love hearing about that.
2: I do want to throw in a plug here because I didn't find this just on my own random, um, uh, random walks of the internet. There's a site called Research Buzz. It's researchbuzz.me. It's actually run uh, as, as what, what we now would call a side hustle by uh, a mutual friend of ours, Tara Kalashane, who basically lives for this kind of stuff. She is constantly posting stories where you know, this data archive is now available or this is going on online where there's a bunch more information Uh, It's actually an incredibly, incredibly valuable service that she runs. And it's totally free. Uh, She's got a Patreon if you want to throw some money at her. But it's one of those things where there's just, if you're interested at all in online research, online information, online news, um, and one of her areas of expertise is also how to filter through a bunch of the data that keeps coming at you in this fire hose of information that we're all faced with. So it's it's just something I can't recommend strongly enough, researchbuzz.me, and uh, see what you find. It's it's very, very interesting, interesting stuff.
0: And we'll put a link on the show
2: page. Yep, and Tara's, a, Tara's just a cool person, too. Yeah. So she's and seconded cool. to
1: all that. It's a yeah. great
3: indeed. Great tool.
0: All right, Gary, what have you come up
1: with yeah. lately?
3: Well, uh, in, in trying to put the uh, enthusiast and tech enthusiasts, but we're actually doing a really good job of that this week, um, mm-hmm. there is... Uh, Ha- Do you guys remember the Sony Ibo? Yeah. Yeah. Vaguely. None of you had, I didn't have one, but. I, I who could it afford was. it? Yeah, I think it was like two grand, or it, two grand, or, and there were cheaper ones. But anyway, for those who don't know, around the year 2000, back in the year 2000, um, Sony had a little robot dog that you could buy. And it was this cute little thing that basically did some tricks walked around It responded to voice commands you could pet it and it would wag its tail and it had a little bit of personality to it it was kind of at the cutting edge of, of robotics and ai and it cost like two thousand dollars um it didn't sell very well uh was kind of limited to what it did but it did have fans fans that still have the original uh one around um and they eventually discontinued it and everything um, and now they've brought it back, actually last year, they came up with a completely new model um, so it's a total reboot of it uh not like continuing the old line um they did it in Japan, and then now the news is that they're making it available in the United states um It costs even more now, but uh some interesting things about it so so it's a robot dog it's, it's small, right just a uh, tiny little dog but um and it's runs on batteries. Uh, it the new one is actually really quite capable, as you would imagine. The difference between the year 2000 and 2018 in terms of this stuff is incredible. So, I mean, it's, the old one had like a really weak processor in it and, and had some had almost no networking in, in it. I couldn't communicate with anything. This one's got 64-bit quad-core processor. It's got not only modern Wi-Fi, but 4G LTE connect, connections. So you don't even need the Wi-Fi. It's got a front camera. It's got – the eyes are actually two OLED displays, so kind of like Apple Watch <laughs> displays. So the eyes can basically blink and stare and look around and really display anything. Um, it's got microphones. It's got speakers, so it can hear you. It can, it can bark and make noises. Um, it's using, in its artificial intelligence – some of the stuff that has been developed for cars for navigation. So the idea of mapping the surroundings. I'm scared?
1: No, no, I don't know. Um, yeah, <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> so it's got some really cool tech in it, and of course the AI is far superior to anything from back then. Not only that, but the processor and the RAM and everything is far superior to be able to to run that kind of thing. And it's cloud based, so it can kind of be updated and and kind of draw and stuff. Um, I'm really curious you know i think the time is right for this kind of thing because a lot's happened in the last 18 years uh you know some of the things that i thought of immediately when i saw this was um people a lot more intimate with their technology now i mean think of the year 2000 right way before smartphones and how now people are attached to their smartphones right and they they panic when they think they've lost it or didn't bring it with them or something like that um People have social media, which is a whole new way of interacting with technology. Um, in the time between the last iBo and this iBo, we've gotten these little you know, room vacuum cleaners, right? Like the Roomba and everything. And people have actually treated them as pets and personified them, right? Give them names, uh, talk about how they act and everything like that.
0: Um, and they don't even have
3: eyes. They don't even have eyes. They're not meant to be pets. They're just whatever. And people are kind of personifying something that, just almost vaguely can be personified let alone this robot dog which is actually built for being you know personified and being a real thing um and also you know with social media now i think there was a big fan base or i say really a small fan base but a fan base of these original ones now you've got social media that connect people that want to be fans of the new one so i think that could be exciting um Plus, think about the, te- the tech in here. So you have this this thing that can navigate around your house, and it's got a camera in it, and it's connected to the internet. I mean, I'm thinking for security, you know, it's like instead of installing cams all over the place to check on your house when you're gone, you could have your dog programmed to walk around the house, you know, once every other hour and do so- a two-minute video upload. So it's a guard dog. It could be a security camera dog. And it could even do things like you wouldn't even imagine. Sec- like, okay, tell it to look out this window or look uh, through the mail slot or you know, check out something in the house. Oh, you know, I'm getting an alert from the HVAC system. Have it go and, <laughs> and look at the front and see if there's a red warning light on it or something. You could do that. It, it's smart enough it, to go back to its charging station. So it can actually run around the house. And then when it's getting low on batteries, it'll go back to where it'll charge. So Stay you don't have plug. to charge it. You know, it, it'll do the charging itself. Anyway, I think this could be really interesting um, now. And, and also think of the, you know, the audience for it. Like, uh, you know, young people that maybe live in places that don't allow pets, uh, or that travel a lot. Right. One of the problems, you know, as Leo and I know when traveling, is you've got these dogs that can't come with you and what do you do um you know you have to find uh, dog sitters and you know that kind of thing but with robot dogs you just turn them off <laughs>
2: <laughs> or you pack them in your or, suitcase <laughs> or, or, or yeah,
3: you actually could but you could take them away more easily but you know or they could be sentries, you know around the house so you don't have to worry about leaving them on their own and then another thing that occurred to me about it was you know the price tag now of saying uh, is the american edition is going to be three thousand dollars which includes a three-year subscription plan to their, you know, the online service that you need to be hooked up to. I think the Japanese version was cheaper, but then you paid an annual subscription.
1: So your dog will die if you don't pay for it?
3: Well, well, I mean, <laughs> they will be way. right? The idea is, I, I don't know what happens. If, but I was, somebody was saying that's a steep price. Well... Leo, you and I know. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> $3,000. Wow. Come on. I mean, you know, food and, and vet appointments and all that stuff. It's like, you know, it, it, it's a hidden cost, right? You don't really see it. But, yeah, $3,000 is – you spend money on your on – your- so Gary,
0: all I'm really picturing here is you saying, Ibo, open the doggy door. I'm sorry, Gary. I'm afraid I can't do that. <laughs>
3: Well can you imagine the hacking possibilities, right? I mean, because back in two thousand, I don't think the kind of maker, you know, hacker, you know, mentality was quite there yet for I mean certainly there were people doing that, but I mean, this thing's got, you know, the all the microphones and you have all the software out there that, you know, deals with things like Alexa and everything. And can you imagine you know, being able to program this? Right now, it just barks, right? And it responds like a dog. But why not reprogram it to actually speak? Use you know use the voice of one of the uh, assistants now and speak through it. Why doesn't it work with Amazon's system? It could it could be made to work with it? Right. I have, have cool possibilities.
2: I have a different vision. Yeah. Um, imagine ibo crossed with Battle Bots. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> I I guess you could. I I think the idea is maybe to be too attached to it to want to see damage done to the, <laughs> the reinvented dog fighting. Yeah. yeah. So you person. know, I
0: I totally get your interest and your enthusiasm for the tech behind this thing. It's really neat. Yeah. What I see is three thousand dollars for a mechanical dog, while at the same time, all these shelters all over the country are destroying oh. real dogs because people don't oh. want them things just got
1: real here on the TV <laughs> i know i but th-
0: you know i think it it needs to be addressed i mean what could that three thousand yeah. dollars do in a in a humane society well, but shelter? If you
3: can't if you can't have a dog for whatever reasons it could be allergy be your your home situation it could be travel whatever it is if you can't have a dog then the three thousand and your probably not saying the options are $3,000 to the kennel or $3,000 to a dog. You know, you're probably saying $3,000 to this dog or $3,000 to a, a new TV, you know, or something.
2: There um, actually, there actually is another scenario that I think is really, really lucrative for the, a lucrative market for this. And that is um, hospitals, nursing homes, um, yeah. elder care uh, folks who, you know, literally they can't take care of a dog, even if they could have one. And yet the companionship, albeit, Artificial um, can actually add a lot of value to their lives, and I think that that's a, this is an opportunity. Maybe not necessarily for a dog, but other types of, of animatronic, if you will, devices like this. I think there's some opportunities,
3: right? Because they have had there was that kind of like sea lion little creature that they created that for elder care for you know right, that, right. and that there was a lot of positive results. Now the cool thing about a dog is uh, microphones and cameras, so. You have your, uh, you know, uh, older family member living on their own and you give them this thing and it, there's a oh, little companionship, but also you can't get through to them. Maybe there's a way that you can have the dog check on them, Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can access the dog's camera. They, you know, get into trouble, right. Fall down. Can't get up. The dog has microphones, you could say, you know, Ibo, Ibo, call
2: 911.
3: Call, yeah, call 911. <laughs> Ibo message whatever, you know. So there's a lot that could be done there with uh, elder care there with a, 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 and then you know you, you talk about three thousand dollars. Certainly, that's nothing because some of the things you're spending money on to, you know, the technology you're spending money on to help an elderly person live alone or you know in a situation like that. $3,000 isn't really that big of expense for what it could do. Now, none of this stuff I'm talking about, I think iBo actually does right now, but it could. Right. right? All the hardware problem. is there. Yep. So it would be interesting to see. Now, I should add that the original um, iBo was like $2,000, but it spawned a whole bunch of knockoffs that were really cheap. And I did actually have one of those. It cost 60 bucks, And it was basically a toy dog that... The
1: $3,000 one is also a toy dog. Yeah, well, yes.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but It's it a was, professional toy. Instead of being a robot, it was a toy. I, I'm just drawing a line there. But, you know, it was kind of thing. It did, like, half of what the iBo did, right? And it was much simpler. You know, if you wanted to fetch the little bone, you had to actually put the bone near near it in front of it, and, and it used magnets to detect it. So it was kind of fun to play with um, kind of thing. Uh, and the same thing may happen again. But I think it might happen in a different way because, you know, now that we have cheap processors and cheap, you know, much cheaper hardware parts and things like that, there might be this $3,000 one and there may be a, you know, $800 one that maybe does actually, you know, is actually programmable, you know. It's kind of the Android tablet of of the robot dog world. You can actually then customize it and say, this is for elder care. This will actually, you know... This will actually ask for attention uh, once every three hours, right? It'd be great to have this dog actually bark for attention once every three hours and have the owner have to say, oh, quiet down now or something like that. And if the owner doesn't say anything, something like that, there's an alert, right? That's, you know, A, there's no response and the dog is barking. Maybe somebody needs to check on room, whatever. Or maybe you
0: don't need to call 911, but at least it could go looking for sure. yeah the person and you know, are they in the house? Are they on the floor?
3: Exactly. Are they? Yeah. Grab a, I mean, using facial recognition. Oh, and Ibo does use facial recognition too. Um, And I think voice recognition, if I remember correctly. So it can actually respond and develop relationships with individuals in your household. Um, But yeah, have it do that. Have it. uh, I mean, yeah, there's all sorts of really cool possibilities. And if you think of uh, having some sort of uh you know more generic robot type of thing or surveillance device might not be so friendly but just introducing this simple dog with the charging station up against the wall and saying it's fun it just will play with you and all this and if it barks just tell it to be quiet and it will leave you alone and now suddenly you actually have a system that will help somebody who needs who needs help in place kind of in disguise so anyway Cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah, really cool stuff.
2: Kevin, you want to touch on the Apple One thing that's going to the other extreme of the
1: technology timeline, but I think it's an interesting
2: one. Relatively short.
1: Sure. Um, The uh, Apple One computer came out in 1976. It cost $666.66. And uh, it's a pretty rare computer because... um, they, first of all, they didn't make that many of them. And second about of 200. all, yeah, about 200. And uh, second of all, when the Apple II came out, uh, Apple had a, a buyback program where you'd send them your Apple one, and then you'd get a big discount on your Apple two. So there's not a lot of them out there. Um, and one is going on sale soon. And there's an article in the Seattle Times uh, title, uh, headline is, uh, only a handful of Apple One computers exist. One is expected to fetch $300,000. And it's kind of a breathless article about how an Apple One's going for sale and Steve Jobs' rare, you know, uh, buy now, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, I, I got to say, if, if you are someone who is in the retro computing, old computing, a hobby like i am um it's like uh, oh it's an apple one for sale another one okay that's fine move on <laughs> You know? um i just want I, I feel like these aren't i mean they're rare but they're not as rare as an article like this makes them out to be um well, it claims that there's only 60 right
0: 60 uh, still exist yeah so apparently just
1: though, yeah that that's may that, that, that they know of that they know of right and right. then but the, Every you know, every time—not every time—once in a while, when one of these show up, it's just like, oh, here's one that was not known to exist, or you know, it's like they don't because they don't really know. Um, you know, I personally know a couple of people who have one, and uh, and a museum that has a couple more. Um, and they come up from time to time. And all I wanted to say about this is that if you want an Apple One, uh, three hundred thousand dollars is really not a bad price. Um, price on these has actually come down quite a bit. Um, in two thousand twelve. Uh, one sold for about uh, half a million dollars. And in 2013, one sold for $670,000. And then a a rare one was sold in 2014 for $905,000. And um, all I'm saying is if you're in the market for an Apple One, it's kind of a buyer's market.
0: You know, and I it's going to be auctioned and that 300,000 is basically a guess. And my guess is it's going to go for a lot more than that. And here's why. Yeah, they were, you know, they made 200 of them. 60 are known to exist. But this one not only works, hasn't been modified since because that was part of the deal with these things. You hacked them apart and you added a new chip and you did this and you cut the circuit board there and added that. Mm -hmm. Uh, This one is pristine and it still boots, so I think it's it's a little bit more rare than oh yeah here's another one, mm. and I think it's going to go for a lot more than three hundred thousand. I,
1: I I bet it will go for uh, between I'm going to say three fifty. I don't think it's it's going to go for that much more because um, it's not a I mean some of the more expensive ones that have sold are particularly rare like prototypes or Steve Jobs. Or, or sorry, was you know hand built this one or whatever it was, um, and well, he hand uh,
0: built all of them, didn't he? Uh,
1: well, I think eventually they hired some people to also do it, but yeah, it, you know, it was, the ones that have sold for a lot more were special for some reason. Um, for instance, one sold two two thousand sixteen was the the earliest serial number that had been seen. For instance, um, yeah, I, I'm gonna guess uh, three fifty. We'll see. We can. Well, you're, on, you're on. record. That's for sure.
0: All right. I'll say 351. Just in okay.
1: <laughs> one dollar. Uh,
0: well, and the, the amusing thing I saw in that article is the guy had apparently tried to sell it to Waz in 1982 for 10 grand, and Waz didn't bother to reply. So who knows if he got spam filtered or what? But um,
2: All I can say is that $3,000 IBO is looking a whole lot better right back
1: <laughs> And if you buy it now and then don't use it and don't take it out of the package and don't modify it, who knows what it'll be worth in 30, 40 years. There you go.
3: I think you should do that just to find out.
1: <laughs> good investment. All All right, episode
3: 5,827 of the Tech Enthusiast Hour, <laughs> 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 we check back in on something we said in episode 39. <laughs>
0: So there you go. I think that's probably getting close to an hour. It's so, an hour's uh, worth. It looks good to me. So what are you week. guys working on uh, in the next week?
3: Why, uh, let's see. I'm getting ready for Apple's announcements, and which will probably in some way include the new macOS Mojave. And I'm going to, uh, of course, come up with a new course for the new operating system. And I have to do. Yeah, I have to do those in advance. So, I'm starting to work on on that course. It's going to be a big course, my best course yet. So, takes up a lot of my time.
0: There you go. Yeah. I'll be
2: uh, this week. I'm basically trying to get ahead a little bit, getting questions answered and things written because Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I'm going to be doing something distinctly non-technical, at least in the new. Uh, new technology, I'm going to be uh, running as radio support, ham radio support for Bike MS out of Mount Vernon, Washington. It's one of the uh, the larger charity bike rides. I think we'll probably end up with like 1,500 bicycles on the road doing courses uh, ranging from 50 miles to 100 miles. My job specifically is to drive the course all day long looking for uh, riders, riders, In need of assistance and reporting back via the radio what's happening on the course and how things are going it's uh, it's a lot of fun I've done it for several years now and uh, but it is definitely you know two and a half full days worth of uh, of work uh, volunteer work there's a bunch of us there's I think like 30 or 40 of us who actually handle the radio side of things while all this is going on it's a pretty big event Anyway, if you're in the Mount Vernon, Anacortes, Oak Harbor areas in you know, out north of Seattle, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, uh, keep an eye out for my my brown sequoia with a license plate N7LEO. That's my ham radio call sign. That's me running around looking for bicycles in distress.
3: Are you gonna bring along some gorgies to to run out and like lick the face of any? <laughs> I'm, I'm that is I fortunately frown
2: on that, and it is yeah. a pretty long day for the dogs as well if he's stuck in the car with me. So, no, <laughs> no, nope, nope, they're staying at home. I'll uh, be out there on my own.
3: Get the little thing of brandy, that little barrel of brandy underneath yeah. the collar. <laughs> yeah. you know? I had it.
2: If I had an eyeball, it might be
0: different. Yeah, there you go. On <laughs> a uh, corgi, the the little barrel just drags in the ground.
3: It's well, it's got to be like one of those airport uh, liquor bottle size. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Or a camelback type thing where they're wearing it on yeah.
2: their
3: back.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, the next weekend, I will uh, be being. I will be at the XOXO Fest, which is an experimental festival for independent artists and creators who work on the internet. It is in Portland. I'm in Portland, so I'm going to be there with some friends and uh, check that out. Fun.
0: All right. Well, I don't think I'm doing much of anything. So uh, just whatever comes up in my to-do list.
2: All then. All right. Very
0: boring, I know. <laughs> All right, let's wrap it up. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh39. And as always, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter at The TEH Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again here next week.
1: Bye. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye.